Hello, I'm Ian Griggs, Deputy Editor of Wind Power Monthly. Welcome to the third episode of the Wind Power Podcast. In this episode, we're going to focus on the US offshore wind industry. There have been some significant developments recently in the world of US offshore wind, including a landmark ruling in the ongoing court battle between two of the largest turbine manufacturers in the world, and a major policy announcement from President Biden's administration, which has the potential to transform the fortunes of the wind industry's domestic supply chain. So today, I'm joined by two members of the team at the US Business Network for Offshore Wind. The network is a non-profit educational organization which brings together industry representatives, policymakers, and academic experts, and which seeks to develop the offshore wind industry and its supply chain. So I'm pleased to welcome Sam Salustro, who is the network's director for coalitions and strategic partnerships. And Sam is joined by his colleague, John Begala, who is Vice President of Federal and State Policy at the Network. Hello, and thanks for joining me. Hi, Ian. Good to be here. Hey, Ian. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. I, I want to kick off by asking you both about a story which has gripped readers of Wind Power Monthly's website over the last two weeks, and that's the patent dispute between US firm General Electric and the European company Siemens Gamesa Renewable Energy regarding GE's flagship Halliade X turbine. Jurors last week found in favour of Siemens Gamesa in one of its two patent claims, but they also found that G's infringement was not willful and that Siemens Gamesa had not proved it had lost profits. Nevertheless, jurors awarded royalties of $30,000 per megawatt to Siemens Gamesa, which we understand is higher than usual for this type of case. Meanwhile, a federal judge in the same case has earlier ruled that U.S. patent law applies to offshore wind technology up to 200 nautical miles from the coast. I want to ask both of you, what do you think of the broad implications of the juror's verdict in this case? So, Sam, do you want to take this one first? I'm going to start off by just sort of cautioning that, you know, the the American court system has many layers to it. And uh, while this court case has come down... You know, there's there's going to be appeals. Uh, litigation is going to continue for a while. So uh, not quite sure. I'm not sure that we can still say definitely how this court case is going to end up. You know, the broad implication is that it's it's fascinating that that pen law that they've extended pen law to 200 miles because this isn't going to just hit offshore wind. This is going to hit other industries, telecoms, uh, offshore oil, offshore gas, for example. And at the same time, we're not uh, strangers to IP court cases in the renewable energy industry, let alone sort of any emerging technology industry. Uh, IP fights are are very common, especially in tech. If you follow tech at all, they're they're rife with them. We'll see how this actually ends up later. Go ahead, John. Yeah, and ultimately, you know, we do see the Vineyard Project moving forward on its expected timeline. And so long as that's able to continue moving forward, uh, then, you know, we, we don't see this being a major disruption to the industry in the near term. Bearing in mind your your note of caution there, Sam, you know, one commentator has told us that the federal judge's ruling about patent law, that it exposes the entire U.S. offshore wind pipeline to intellectual property risk. Sam, what do you think of that suggestion? Do you think it's alarmist or realistic? I'm going to assume that the person you talk to knows a little bit more about IP law than I do. It seems to me that the entire industry is probably exposed to IP, you know, land-based wind, solar, any renewable energy, because of its nature, is already built on land. 
you know, already falls under IP law. So I'm not quite sure how how much more exposure this is really, you know, um, um, broadening out other than a lot of these technologies are already in play on land on the continental United States or probably in Europe, too. I'm not quite sure how IP laws work over there. John, any further thoughts on that one? Well, Sam touched on this, but, you know, we have seen the onshore wind industry develop uh, rapidly in the U.S. And uh, I just don't I don't see why this would uh, impact offshore wind any differently than, than onshore. There's going to be another hearing in July uh, where they'll decide on damages. And Sam, how do you think GE is going to fare in this? Do you think it will walk away from this bruise uh, intact? We'll be a little careful. Uh, GE and both uh, Siemens Gamesa are both members of ours, so we don't want to get too prognostication of what's going to happen to them. Sure. We do know that GE is still making investments in the U.S. market. So that's our tell and that's what we can see. They're standing up a, a nacelle assembly facility in the New Jersey wind port in southern New Jersey. Um, we, they're still moving ahead with their contracts that they have uh, signed with other projects. So that's, that's the best indication I can see is what their public signals are, and they seem to be moving ahead. Okay. In a court case like this where everybody's uh, fighting each other and trying to get an advantage, are, are there any obvious winners and losers? The old joke is lawyers stand to benefit from this. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the sad thing would be if this just increases the cost of this technology or this energy within the United States. We are seeing unprecedented drops in price across the board. And we do have some new pressures that are happening. Uh, the, the U.S. market has been a little insulated from some of these pressures because we're, we're still developing. You know, we're not in the middle of our construction. We're just beginning our construction. But, you know, in the long run, if this is just slightly increasing the price of what offshore wind is, the people that suffer are the ratepayers at the end of the day. So that's the unfortunate thing about how intellectual property fights usually go down is, is the consumer at the end of the day is the one that just kind of suffers the damages. Absolutely. And I mean, turbine manufacturers across the board are all struggling with their own sort of unique and similar issues uh, across the board. Can the wind industry really afford to be fighting amongst itself like this? Vestas chief technology officer was telling us in an opinion piece that, you know, actually the industry needs to kind of work together a little bit more here. Do you agree with that, Sam? Yeah, we absolutely agree. The offshore wind industry is going to be beset by a lot of potential setbacks. And it's always been the mission of the business network to bring together um, industry in a way that is collaborative, that can look at far-reaching problems and identify uh, common potential solutions to tackle those. We've been very successful uh, so far. We're uh, As an industry, we've really put out leadership thought on transmission issues. Being able to look at Europe and seeing what Europe is going through and adjusting, uh, especially the UK with transmission issues, and being as collaborative as possible on the supply chain. We had to build an entirely new supply chain here in the United States, and it we're, we're trying to do what took Europe 30 years to do, and we're trying to do it in eight years. Like we're trying, 
or condensing that timeline significantly. Moving on from the court case, I want to talk about another big story to um, emerge in the in the U.S., and that's President Biden's big policy announcement. So, President Biden was joined by members of his senior team, uh, eleven East Coast state governors and wind industry professionals, including the Business Network for Offshore Winds chief executive Liz Burdock. So he was there. They were there last week to launch a new state-federal partnership to boost offshore wind development in the U.S. Uh, and this partnership intends to identify and address supply chain, uh, workforce and port constraints to help the US build a robust domestic supply chain. John, this is possibly your area of expertise here. Is this the game-changing policy development the US offshore wind industry needs? Well, Ian, I have to say the Business Network was so honored for the president to have invited us to join that meeting. And and Liz did a phenomenal job of briefing the president on the state of the U.S. supply chain, but also where we need to go from here. And and I am optimistic that this is the turning point. Uh, The Biden administration has shown incredible focus on the industry. They have begun to really uh, turn the attention of many different secretariats beyond just the Department of Interior to supporting the build out of the industry. Uh, And I think that there is nothing more powerful than having the president himself personally focused on this issue. You know, Ian, one of the things that maybe didn't come out in the press is the president was only supposed to drop in for five minutes, but he wound up staying for the entire meeting, leading the discussion, participating with industry leaders and labor leaders, and being able to see his personal focus put on display in that way really gives me a lot of hope that his administration is going to follow suit. I just want to reiterate, it's so crucial having this partnership. You know, the United States, we're, we're 50 states, and our states are uh, incredibly powerful market drivers in their own right, and they set their own rules and they set their own regulations. At the same time, the federal government is the one that is actually leasing the waters and permitting. So there's always been this, there's two bosses going on right now in the offshore wind industry, and seeing them align is so powerful to hit the acceleration of the industry that we really need. My favorite fictional US president of all time, President Bartlett, said decisions are made by those who show up. (laughs) Sam, has the network been lobbying for this policy development for some time behind the scenes? I want to be careful. So we are a 501c3. So in American tax law, we are not the ones who are actually lobbying. But uh, it's always been the network uh, has always had a mission of driving collaboration. And it's a, we've always encouraged the federal government to take this leadership role that they're taking right now. In addition to that, uh, we've always been advocating states to work closer together. Like I said, we have 50 states. Well, let's say that we only have really like 15 that are active in the offshore wind industry. But instead of having 15 different markets, we've always encouraged them to work together, pool resources, uh, a pool intent in a way to create that larger anchor market. And, and we've already been seeing that. The mid-Atlantic states have been working together. New York and New Jersey have been working together. The New England states have been working together. This is creating a second form, another form for them to have these kind of conversations and these partnerships. Sure. Do you think this policy announcement is going to help the U.S.? meet that target of uh, developing 30 gigawatts of offshore by 2030, 110 gigawatts by 2050. These are incredibly ambitious uh, targets. Is this going to help you to build that required infrastructure? 
And what are your thoughts, John? This is absolutely going to be able to help build out that infrastructure. And while 30 gigawatts by 2030 is an ambitious target, uh, I am optimistic that when the states get together and, and agree on, on various elements of supply chain build out and the feds can get together and uh, start working through the various permitting issues, uh, I, I do think that we can see 30 gigawatts by 2030. And I think that this partnership is going to play a key role. It's always great to have a target. It's always great to have a goal because when you have a goal, then you can start aligning all of your pieces to move towards that goal. Besides this, there's been a lot of a lot of smaller work done by the federal government to a lot to sort of align the ship towards this goal. And it's it's always critical to have that sort of that mission that everyone can rally around and work towards. It, it makes everything go a little easier. Indeed. Aim for the stars and you may just reach the moon, right? No, we're still reaching the stars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So your chief executive, Liz Burdock, calls this a critical step towards unlocking supply chain growth. Where do you see the gaps in the policy from the industry's point of view? Are there, could this have gone further? John, what do you think? Well, I think it'll be important to see what exactly comes out of the first steps of this partnership. Uh, you know, there are a lot of areas in the industry that, that we would love to see more federal investment, but but a lot of that is going to have to come from Congress uh, by way of some sort of new uh, version of Build Back Better. Uh, you know, the, the tax credits that, that exist here in the American market, the investment tax credit and the production tax credit are going to play a key role in getting an extension on those tax credits uh, will be a really important element of this. And while this partnership is going to be crucial for marshalling federal support and state coordination, uh, it, it's not going to be able to get all the way there as far as uh, getting these some of these congressionally funded programs uh, online. And ultimately, that's going to come down to, to the capital. How might the coming midterm elections affect the outcome of, of what you're saying is, is needed? Sam? This is a golden opportunity to pass something on Capitol Hill that, that does incentivize and accelerate, I'm going to say accelerate uh, renewable energy development because it's, it's been moving extremely fast here in the United States. Uh, John talked about investment tax credits. There's also like we could have manufacturing tax credits that, that can really you know, add fuel to the fire of all the activity that we've already been seeing. This is a golden opportunity to do it. Uh, however, we are seeing a, a widening of bipartisan support for offshore wind in the United States. The 11 governors that signed on to this partnership, I think three that are, are Republican governors, uh, there's a, a, a huge interest in offshore wind in the Gulf of Mexico, which is a predominantly Republican part of, uh, you know, rep politically Republican part of the country. You know, at its core, offshore wind does two things. It, it creates uh, plentiful, renewable, clean energy. It also is an enormous economic driver, uh, job creator. And a lot of these coastal states are looking at the potential for the job creation that comes along with it. Uh, down in the Gulf of Mexico, um, we have a very, you know, up just like up in Scotland, very extensive oil and gas industry. And this is a way to utilize those skills, utilize that infrastructure, utilize those assets for a second life or life extension, whatever you want to say. Uh, just utilizing all those companies that are already involved, giving them another diversification opportunity. Uh, this is, you know, so I think that we're going to continue seeing growing bipartisan support for this industry, mainly because of just the, the pure economic development 
potential that it, it offers to a lot of these local communities and very importantly to just the manufacturing sector as a whole. That's really encouraging that there appears to be growing bipartisan support for a healthy offshore wind industry. I'm glad you mentioned jobs there actually, Sam, because how does the US offshore industry intend to meet the challenge of training a skilled workforce to build and maintain the offshore wind fleet? And how do you incentivize a migration of workers from other sectors such as oil and gas? John, what do you think? Well, we've been seeing some of it already, right? You know, 23% of the contracts that we track for the US offshore wind industry are coming out of the Gulf of Mexico. And those are vessels that are crewed by, you know, oil and gas uh, mariners who have been in some form of offshore servicing or construction for, I'm sure, all of their lives. So we already have a fairly well-built um, uh, servicing side for, for the offshore industry. Um, there are obviously going to be some challenges as far as getting enough wind technicians trained up, uh, but we're seeing a lot of states take the initiative, sometimes in the form of, of running studies and gaps analyses uh, to understand where their uh, community college and technical school programs need to be targeted. Um, but then you, you also have, for example, MassCEC standing up some, some workforce programs that'll be able to do the direct training themselves. Uh, the, the business network is uh, a collection of uh, people within the supply chain, and some of those people in the supply chain are the trainers and the training schools and the community colleges. And they see this opportunity just as much as, uh, you know, a, a, a shipper operator looks at the same opportunity. And, they, you know, we're seeing a lot of public and private uh, uh, standing up of programs to, to tackle this. A lot of this will become more and more in focus as the industry develops. Uh, so a lot of our members are, you know, essentially creating new business plans of saying, okay, we, we can see we can see the gap that's coming. We can help fill that. Like John said, a lot of studies are coming out and those studies are very, you know, those are the basis of business plans saying, hey, we need 10,000 welders in the next, you know, five years. And someone can say, oh, I know how to teach that. I can do that. One of the other encouraging things that we're seeing in is the labor unions really uh, taking a step to to be able to train up some of the workforce. I think they see the opportunity that exists here, uh, and they're very quickly moving to to be a part of that. You have the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers uh, really taking a strong interest in offshore wind. The steel workers understand that this is a, a wonderful opportunity for their members as well. And so, you know, when you see the labor unions starting to move to stand up their own training programs, it's really encouraging. And that gives us a lot of hope that we will have the workforce there that we need. We are putting rose-colored glasses on it. It is a challenge. It is a problem. I think that we're just encouraged that the people who are who should be paying attention and moving to adjust are are doing that, but there's there's other sectors that need to happen too. So, I, like we need engineers, we need more people coming out of um, of STEM fields, and we need more uh, higher education classes dedicated to engineering and permitting and, and all of that. So, I mean, I'm telling my 12 year old at the moment that if he trains to be an engineer, he'll be working <laughs> his whole life. Does the network need to do a job of work telling schools to tell their careers advisors, look, this is a fantastic industry, kids, to be, uh, to, to be moving into? Yes, yes. 
anyone that will listen to us, we always tell them of the opportunity that that is presented. The other side of this is, you know, do you think there'll be enough projects coming through consistently enough to keep these people employed? Is there a danger of a sudden rush uh, to the sector, followed by the work drying up, uh, perhaps? And how do you address that? I think that's highly unlikely that you'll see any sort of a slowing of demand, Ian. You know, we've already tracked uh, 40 gigawatts worth of states uh, uh, setting out targets and goals for their offshore wind procurement process. And that's without even counting some of the West Coast giants like California and Oregon. Uh, And then on top of that, we've already got 17.3 gigawatts that have reached financial offtake. And those projects are now working their way through the federal permitting. So what all this does is it effectively sets the stage for a very steady and consistent growth of the industry over the next 10 to 30 years. John, I mean, Biden's announcement also covers designating offshore wind vessels as so-called vessels of national interest. How significant a policy shift is that part of the announcements for you? This is very significant. And in fact, we met with Merad recently, um, and it was it's encouraging to see the senior leadership at Merad focused on offshore wind and focused on providing the support that they can to make sure that we have the vessels built here in the U.S. that we need. Uh, and with that sort of support, we are very optimistic that the U.S. is going to be able to build out the number of service operations vessels and other large vessels that will be required to construct and service the industry. This is one program that they've that they've designated, and there's been other attempts of finding other ways of financing ships here in the United States. So, it, you know, this is a continuation of what the federal government has been doing, which is kind of turning over every rock that they can to figure out a way to, to help move this industry forward. So there's a, a, a Department of Energy program called the LPO program. You know, there's other programs within Merit that are that are gaining steam. So it's 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 indicative of of the intent of this of this administration so on the flip side of the kind of the vessels uh, discussion you you've got wind industry professionals written to senate leaders in washington to condemn the coast guard authorization act 2022 which requires vessels operating on the us outer continental shelf to be manned either by crew from the same nation as the flag under which the vessel sails or us crews and they've described this uh, piece of legislation as quote a stake through the heart and again, quoting, an existential threat to the offshore wind industry. It's pretty strong language. What do you think about that? Do you agree? Well, I think it's important to begin by emphasizing that under the current regime, uh, the offshore wind industry is going to bring a lot of work to Jones Act compliant vessels. Uh, We should clarify, we're an organization that has both Jones Act vessel operators and international foreign flag vessel operators. Uh, And like Sam mentioned earlier, we are a 501c3, and so we don't lobby on these issues. We have a lot of partners on the Hill that do engage in direct advocacy. Um, uh, However, I think it's also uh, worth noting that uh, if this were to pass, this would be representing a major shift in policy right at the time that this industry is about to take off. John can go a little bit more into it, but... um as we are talking about this kind of uh, legislation, you know, we have to think about complementary legislation at the same time. So ensuring that we are we are building up a workforce that's capable of crewing and staffing, uh, helping our shipyards uh, have the support that they need to be able to, um, you know, expanding our shipyard capacities and expanding our shipyard uh, capabilities in order to make sure that we're, meet, we're able to meet the demand. 
Do you think policymakers are giving the offshore wind industry mixed messages uh, on vessels with federal incentives on the one hand and essentially hampering their progress with restrictive legislation on the other? The Jones Act is meant to incentivize uh, American shipbuilding, right? Pairing that with incentives, I don't think is a mixed message. It's just being aware of what would happen should all this legislation actually pass and moving to adjust or, uh, or, or pass complementary legislation at the same time. We need to expand our shipyards. Even without this legislation, we need to expand our maritime academies. Even without this legislation, we need to be ensuring that we're, we're getting the skilled workforce. You know, the United States has big goals. The rest of the world has enormous goals at the same time. And there's going to be a crunch of labor, of equipment, of vessels all around the world, no matter what. So it's only in our best interest to to have the incentives in place to really, I keep saying accelerate, to really accelerate uh, building the workforce and building the ships and building the shipyards. Indeed. But clearly at the moment, there aren't enough vessels to service the future offshore wind fleet, right? And will this legislation help? I'm not sure how the legislation uh, would impact one way or the other. Ultimately, though, we're seeing really strong signs from the private sector as well as the public sector that these vessels are, are going to be built. We've, you know, we've been getting announcements of service operations vessels uh, coming under contract here in the or under contract for construction here in the U.S. And I hear rumors of more coming later this year, and, and we hope to, to see those become public. But, you know, the whole global conversation revolves around uh, wind insulation vessels and wind turbine insulation vessels. And if there's enough global demand, especially with the scaling that is going on of, of the turbines, you know, a lot of the wind turbine insulation vessels around the world are, are potentially obsolete even for the next market. So, you know, it's, it's a global crunch that's going on. We are building one here in the United States. Uh, there's a second one that is going to be a hybrid Jones Act slash American system. It's going to be a system vessel, you can call it that. The federal government is, is very intent on incentivizing the construction of more wind turbine insulation vessels. So again, you know, there's, there's an awareness of the need and uh, the federal government is moving in response as best they can. The private sector is having conversations about coming up with creative, you know, financing solutions to to help the construction of all this. Just it keeps coming back to it. Just more of everything. We need more of everything to <laughs> to be able to do this. More of everything. More of everything is needed right away. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so, John, tell me, you know, what milestones? should observers be looking out for in uh, the U.S. offshore wind industry this year? Well, I mean, I think the most exciting thing coming up the, uh, towards the end of this year is going to be the, the California auctions uh, that Boeing is going to be holding uh, later this year. Uh, these are the first floating wind auctions that have ever, ever been held in U.S. waters. These are also the first West Coast auctions. And this is going to open up an entirely new market for further supply chain development. We've been seeing a lot of interest from California in terms of uh, procuring the wind. They're, they're still figuring out exactly where they want to set their targets. Uh, and we are obviously supportive in uh, you know whatever ways we can be. But I think seeing Boehm auction off uh, these, these California lease areas is going to be extremely encouraging. And that's probably the biggest thing that will happen through the rest of this year. 
the Gulf of Mexico, we do expect to see the proposed sale notice uh, in the Gulf uh, sometime this year. And I think that'll be really interesting because uh, we've heard from Boeing that they plan to designate up to 11 wind energy areas in the Gulf, which suggests that they're going to be looking at some sort of rounds of leasing process where uh, across those 11 wind energy areas, they'll designate particular lease areas and then begin to hold steady auctions over the course of some unknown period of time. And that sort of uh, long-term consistency is exactly what we always talk about here at the network that is required for building up the supply chain and being able to give investors that certainty that the market is going to exist um, moving forward. Exciting things ahead. John talked about the new markets. I'm going to talk about the old markets. East Coast states have deployment goals of 40 gigawatts. I think that we're going to start seeing that double over the next couple of years. There's a lot of states that have passed uh, 100% renewable energy targets, 100% decarbonization goals, and they are working through how they're going to do that. And in the process of working through how they're going to do that, they realize that they're going to need to procure more offshore wind in order to have a have a reliable energy grid and a stable energy grid. So we're going to see some of these some of these states like New York, New Jersey, Maryland, Massachusetts. You, you know, we, we have these targets that are helping us get to 2030 and 2035. What's 2050 look like? And we'll see an explosion in, in demand on the East Coast. And it will be longer term demand, but it, it will be an indicative of of where this market is going at the end of the day. Final question. Uh, can you both identify for me one serious challenge? You know, you can be brief if you like, or just identify one serious challenge and one major opportunity for the US offshore wind industry uh, coming up in the second half of 2022. Sam, do you want to kick us off, off on that one? I'll do the challenge and John can do the opportunity. Um, uh, the, ch- the challenge we, we touched on it a little bit before, but this is this is this is the golden opportunity to get the federal legislation passed, which can really accelerate development in this market. We are growing the bipartisan support. If if government changes hands or something like that, maybe we do have to wait a couple more years to pass some legislation because we need to build more consensus. But there's consensus right now in Capitol Hill on the need to do this. And the people are there to do it. Uh, when John and Liz were at the White House, uh, they they briefed the president on the fact that, you know, we have more than a dozen uh, new facilities coming online on the East Coast. We have an explosion in contracts in offshore wind. Uh, we run an internal, it's not internal, we run a public database of companies who are interested in offshore wind that's doubled over the past year, year and a half. Uh, that there's, there's real momentum. And the best way to even push that harder and faster, create more American jobs, uh, incentivize more investment in American factories, is passing some form of what what they have been debating for the past year, and it's a it's a great opportunity. You know, if we go into the midterms and things change, it probably takes us a couple more years to rebuild the consensus that we have today. So, so that's 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 my challenge. I wasn't pessimistic at all, uh, Sam. I thought that was a ch- that was a that was a challenge dressed up as opportunity. <laughs> <I thought. laughs> 
challenges or opportunities at the end of the day. Of course they are. Of course they are. <laughs> oh, tell us what the opportunity is. <laughs> well, I, I think the opportunity is clear. We have uh, the personal attention of the President of the United States on the offshore wind industry. And that's the first time I think we can really say that here in the United States. Uh, and that's going to translate into as we've already seen, uh, you know, increased coordination between the states as the, the federal government steps in to help be able to coordinate some of these supply chain issues. Um, and, you know, this will also lead to New York and New Jersey um, uh, doing their next rounds of procurement. Uh, again, those are state functions, but ultimately, the, the, as much as the federal government can step in and help coordinate this process, uh, the better uh, results we're going to have. And as we've been talking about uh, throughout this conversation, uh, I do think that this focus of the president presidential administration is going to translate very quickly into to more support for our shipyards, more support for, for all, all of our, our vessel needs here in the United States. And I think that that's just a wonderful opportunity. Uh, and the industry, I believe, is poised to, to make the most of it. That's fantastic. Um, John Bergala, Sam Solistro, thank you very much indeed uh, for talking to us for this podcast. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. It's been fun. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us, Ian. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Wind Power Podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode to explore the issues which are driving the wind industry today.